You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 121. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention today. On the show today, I want to go back to something I haven't picked up in a while. So I thought it'd be nice to go back and do a refresher on this book by Ryan Holiday entitled, The Obstacle is the Way, The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph. It's one of the foundational books that helped me change lanes, I guess is the best way to say it. That along with this and Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, these two books really helped me and my wife reorient the direction of our lives, how to simplify, prioritize, and execute, how to cover and move, and how to equip not only our children, but others around us to lead so that we weren't always to be expected to be the ones who leads, but rather to establish a chain of command, so to speak, so that everyone in the house can be a leader. Everyone in our community can step up and lead when called upon. And this is a summary of extreme ownership. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I actually require as a pastor couples that come to me if their marriage is in trouble or their relationship is struggling, the first thing I do is say, you need to buy a copy of Extreme Ownership and The Obstacle is the Way, and you need to read them, and you need to discuss them. Because what I find in most relationships, whether it be marriage, partners, business relationship, whatever the dynamic, is that one or both parties are unwilling to take 100% ownership of what they bring to the table what they bring into the relationship. In most relationships, when they're out of whack, it's because the balance is off in the relationship. It's a 70-30, 80-20, 90-10 split. And that the dynamics then are weighted heavily towards one person in the relationship, which takes away from the relationship, obviously, and ends up damaging both parties. So by reading Extreme Ownership, by reading The Obstacles the Way, I find anyways, that it creates a vocabulary and it creates a forum in which we can then have a robust and fruitful conversation, an honest conversation about what is infringing upon this relationship, what is casting this relationship into doubt, what is causing us to struggle and to argue and to be at each other's throats in this relationship. And at least in my experience, it's primarily that both people, as I said, are unwilling to take a good hard look at the person in the mirror and admit, this is what I bring into the relationship, good, bad, and otherwise. And therefore, I will take ownership of my part in this relationship, both the good and the bad, in equal parts. But I think I've talked about it before on the show that, in my experience, the teaching that relationships are 50-50, you put in 50%, I put in 50%, and that makes 100%. That is dirty math, and it doesn't work. Because if you're 50% in the relationship, what's the other 50% that you're holding back on? What is that? And why are you holding it back? Are you waiting for someone better to come along? Are you waiting for a better job offer to come along? Are you holding back because you don't trust the person you're with, or you're not sure that the person you're with is worth your time and your energy and attention because you don't know if this relationship is going to work itself out. Well, if that's the case, the relationship's in trouble. These are all warning signs that there's something wrong about the relationship. It's rotting from the foundation. So I highly recommend, pick up Extreme Ownership, pick up the obstacles the way, write in it, highlight it, recommend it to others if you find that it is useful and helpful to you. So to that end... I want to read two small sections from The Obstacles of the Way by Ryan Holiday. The first is found on page 27, entitled Control Your Emotions. And the second is on page 32, entitled Practice Objectivity, because they tend to go hand in hand for me. And especially this time of year, it's August 3rd, 2022, as of this recording. This summer in particular... I have been bombarded by people 
who want to make a foxhole out of their feels, out of their emotions. Everything is I feel. And because I work very hard and very specifically to leash my emotions, to control my emotions, for various reasons I've talked about on the show before, I don't find that a compelling argument. If you don't say yes to her, she's going to cry. Okay, but how does that, how does that have to do with me? That's her choice to cry if she doesn't get the answer from me that she wants. And it's manipulative that she would cry when she doesn't get the answer she wants. It shuts down further conversation. It shuts down any opportunity we may have to address why she's been hurt by my statement. Was it my statement? Was it my body language? Was it how I expressed myself? Or is it her self-pity that is the barrier between the two of us in this relationship? So, Controlling emotions, in my opinion, allows one to take a step back and to analyze from the outside in, looking from the outside of the house through the window into the house to say, if I were standing outside this house right now, watching the two of us interact with each other, what would my opinion be of this couple? Would I say, man, that's crazy? Or would I say, man, I really wish I had what they had. They look like they're really happy together. But to establish that objectivity, we have to first detach our emotions from the experience. That's wisdom. I talked about that on the last episode. So to begin then, Publius Sirius writes, would you have a great empire? Rule over yourself. If you want to have a great empire, whatever that means to you, however you define it, you first have to rule over yourself. You have to be in control of your thoughts. You have to be in control of your feelings and therefore you have to be in control of your physical actions. Because as Epictetus says, the only thing that you have control over is what you think and how you respond to external stimuli. I have no control over the people around me. I have no control over the world around me. The weather, people's coming and going, the decisions of other people, things happening. I have no control over that. I only have control over how I respond. For example, something that happened again two weeks ago that I was able to catch very quickly because I've gone through this so many times now. When I encounter someone who is new to my gym or the gym that I coach and train at, and we spar for the first time, there is this dynamic within that experience of working out who is this person. Are they aggressive and violent? Are they passive and nonviolent? Do they like to move around a lot? Do they like to stand still? Are they a counterpuncher? What kind of energy, what kind of intensity do they bring to the round or rounds in this case? And especially with new people, they like to test you, especially if you're the coach. They've got a lot of ego because they're brand new. They've got a lot to prove to themselves and others because they're brand new. And because of my age, because of my stature, because of the way I'm put together, people look at me and say, well, he's a 51-year-old man. He's 6'2", 185. He's a tall, lanky guy. I can take this guy down. And to take down the coach, to sweep me, to flash knock me out, to choke me out, to submit me, that's a feather in the cap for a lot of white belts. It's a feather in the cap for a lot of blue belts too. And there's that back and forth then in the fight. And sometimes it actually escalates to very near a real fight. And afterwards then, I walk away from that and I have a new enemy. Now, is this person my enemy in reality? No, not usually. 999 times out of 1,000, everything just elevated and I met their energy. And their energy continued to escalate because they don't know how to control themselves in a fight. They're nervous. Their ego is out of control. Their emotions are boiling up. They're trying to prove themselves. They're trying to not be embarrassed in front of other people at the gym. They're all this cocktail, this whole cocktail of emotions are just roiling under the surface of this person. And it doesn't help then that when I encounter that kind of energy, I talk and make jokes while we're sparring. And I try to keep things light on the surface to show that, hey, I'm relaxed. I'm having fun. You need to relax and have fun. Under the surface, what I'm doing is mocking them. I'm egging them on. I'm... I'm elevating their emotional tension higher and higher and higher. 
to lure them in so I can counterpunch, so I can sweep them, so I can clinch with them and throw an elbow or a knee. I can do a judo hip throw. I can get to their back. I can choke them out. I can submit them three times the exact same submission. That's my ego. That's me saying to them in my, my physical kinetic language, I'm better than you are. And I'll always be better than you are because I've been here longer than you. That's my ego. That's not right. But it comes up in those moments. How dare you challenge me? Don't you know who I am? I'll show you. And then afterwards on the way home, I start to think through and process. It used to be I would carry that with me for months at a time, that resentment toward them. And I would sit at home and I'd be in the shower, I'd be in bed, be driving in the car, and I would just start to imagine scenarios of what I would do, how I would react when I walked into the gym the next time and encountered them. How would they threaten me? How would they threaten my kids? What would they say? What would they do to challenge me, to show me that they don't respect me? Because for me, having been abused growing up, having been bullied a lot growing up, respect is a huge issue for me. Disrespect in particular. That's my particular vulnerability. When people show me disrespect, my initial reaction is to lash out at them, to crush them quickly and violently with maximum effort on my part. And it's hurt me a lot in the past. It's ruined a lot of my relationships with people who were not necessarily being disrespectful. They were just caught up in whatever they were doing and they rolled over the top of me, not because they were acting maliciously, not because they wanted to hurt me on purpose. They didn't respect me. They were just caught up in doing their own thing. They were over there in their own selfishness and self-centeredness, not paying attention to who they were running over. Same thing I do all the time when I start imagining that this person doesn't respect me. And now the next time I go in the gym, I got to role play in my mind all of these different scenarios and how I'm going to react. So this happened, like I said, two weeks ago. A new student comes in and spars. And it was a back and forth, do what I do, laugh, joke, keep it light, keep it relaxed. But every time that energy went up, that intensity went up, here comes a teep to the kidney. Here comes an uppercut. Here comes a low leg kick. Just so you know, I can go there too. And he kept apologizing. And I'm like, no, don't worry about it. I'll meet your energy. I told you that before we started. And that's that. And no harm, no foul. He spars a certain way. I spar a certain way. We're both brand new to each other. We don't know each other. We don't trust each other. So we're also feeling each other out. How are we going to dance together? Can we dance together? And I got home and there, here it comes again. I started imagining scenarios and I immediately caught it because I recognized the signs and went, that's just your ego, man. That's just your ego. You're letting your emotions get the best of you. You didn't do what you quote unquote needed to do to show him you're in control. You're the coach. You're experienced. You know what you're doing. And he should learn from you. He should respect you. You didn't do the things that you think are necessary. But is that because you're too hard on yourself? Is it because you took the round off? Is it because your ego is getting the best of you right now? Take a step back. Detach from your emotions. Leash those emotions and look at the scenario objectively. If he doesn't respect you, he won't come back. He won't sign up for the gym. He won't pay his dues. He won't come back. So, hey, that doesn't hurt you and it doesn't hurt him. He goes his way, you go your way. If that's the case and he doesn't respect you because he doesn't respect you for whatever reason, how is that your problem? How is that your worry? Learn from the moment. Learn from this moment. And don't try and think for him. Don't try and put your thoughts in his head. Don't turn him into an object, a cartoon, a figment of my imagination, but rather look at yourself because you can't think for him. You don't know what he's thinking or feeling and he didn't tell you. So therefore you don't know. So don't do that. Don't project your ego onto another person and objectify them. Instead, take a good hard look at yourself. If you're unhappy with the way that you sparred, fix that for next time for the next person you spar with, whether it be one of your students or a new person. Fix that. Check your ego. Ask yourself, why am I so concerned about strangers respecting me? Why do I need that respect? And why do I go about getting their respect in a way that causes me to question 
my motives and intent and their motives of intent. Maybe it's your being false as a person rather than them. And maybe you need to work on being more transparent and more present and more yourself and let them make their own judgments about you, good, bad, or otherwise, and leave it at that. Because ultimately, why do you care about a stranger's opinion? Why do you care? Why do you allow yourself to spin in circles in your mind, in bed when you're with your wife, in the shower when you're supposed to be washing yourself off so you can go eat dinner, when you're driving home when you should be talking with your kids or listening to a podcast and improving yourself? Why are you spinning in circles in your own mind? Well, it's because you're not controlling your emotions. So how can you build an empire for yourself? How can you build a gym? How can you build a business? How can you build a relationship? How can you improve as a person if you can't first rule over yourself? So Ryan Holiday then writes, when America raced to send the first men into space, they trained the astronauts in one skill more than any other, the art of not panicking. When people panic, they make mistakes. They override systems. They disregard procedures. They ignore rules. They deviate from the plan. They become unresponsive and stop thinking clearly. They just react. Not to what they need to react to, but to the survival hormones that are coursing through their veins. Welcome to the source of most of our problems down here on Earth. One, we are obsessed with being in control. That's why we fear chaos. I was reading uh, Terrence McKenna this morning, and he talks about chaos in the sense of we've vilified chaos. We've turned chaos into a negative. Why? Because we must be in control of our environment in every way, shape, or form. It's a compulsion with us. It's like an addiction, an obsession with each of us. We must control our environment. And when chaos is introduced then into our life, into our relationships, into our environment, we panic. We lock everything down. We cry. We make threats. We make deals. We negotiate. We beg, barter, and steal to restore order to our home, to our relationships, to our neighborhood, to our gym, to our business, to our church. Why do we do that? Because we must have control. Well, what does control look like though? It looks like whatever I say it is. We're so self-centered, so self-interested that we don't care about others. We don't really even care about ourselves and our own survival at that point because we're panicked. We're emotional. It's like I like to tell my people, when you look at the forest, for example, what do you see? You see chaos. Why? It's trees and bushes and vines growing in every direction, straight up, crooked, sideways, wrapping around each other, going under and over each other. It looks like a rat's nest. It looks like a ball of yarn after a cat got a hold of it. And yet God calls that order. So when we look at a forest, we see chaos and then what do we do when we plant a forest? Every tree is in a straight is planted in exactly the same distance, equilateral distance from the next tree. Everything in straight lines, everything in 45 degree angles. That's order. Why? Miles and miles of trees in a straight line. Why? How is that order when we look at the rest of the world? Is the rest of the world ordered that way? No. It's my opinion that the world is orderly and we are chaos. We are the chaos in the world because we cannot accept the world as it is. Instead, we insist on having the world as we will make it to be. This is the fundamental assumption of the Great Reset, of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. If we can't change the world, then we'll genetically change people. We'll go inward instead of outward. Instead of mining the earth, instead of building skyscrapers, instead of tearing down mountains and watering deserts, we'll go inward and we will genetically modify people. We have to have control out of the chaos. But I think that's our fundamental dilemma is that we cannot objectively realize and accept we are the chaos. If the world is in chaos, it's our responsibility for it. It's the consequence of us being here. We cannot accept the world as God made it so we must change it into the way that we would have it be for us as individuals. We want to be gods in God's place. So when people panic then, because we see quote-unquote chaos, we react very strongly and very emotionally. 
which just creates more chaos, which should be our tip-off, maybe we're the source of the chaos in the first place. Everything for us, to continue with Ryan Holiday here, everything is planned down to the letter. Then something goes wrong, and the first thing we do is trade in our plan for a good old emotional freakout. Some of us almost craze, crave, sorry, crave, not craze, crave sounding the alarm, because it is easier than dealing with whatever is staring us in the face. At 150 miles above Earth, in a spaceship smaller than a VW, this is death. Panic is suicide. So panic has to be trained out. And it does not go easily. Ain't that the truth? Before the first launch, NASA recreated the fateful day for the astronauts over and over, step by step, hundreds of times, from what they'd have for breakfast to the ride to the airfield. Slowly, in a graded series of exposures, the astronauts were introduced to every sight and sound of the experience of their firing into space. They did it so many times that it became as natural and familiar as breathing. They'd practice all the way through, holding nothing back but the liftoff itself, making sure to solve for every variable and remove all uncertainty. Uncertainty and fear are relieved by authority, training to authority. It's a release valve. With enough exposure, you can adapt out those perfectly ordinary, even innate fears that are bred mostly from unfamiliarity. Fortunately, unfamiliarity is simple to fix. Again, not easy. Simple, just not easy. Which makes it possible to increase our tolerance for stress and uncertainty. Yeah. Monday night at the gym, I decided to only roll with higher belts, brown belts. So it was six rounds of just violence and chaos, to quote the text here. Just getting swarmed by brown belts. And yet, even six months ago, some of the positions that I was in would have caused me to react very strongly, not panic necessarily, but at the very least, my brain would say, move, 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 get out, move, get to a position, defend yourself. Whereas just this past Monday then, I was caught in some very, very difficult situations. Back takes, I was on the bottom for a mounted guillotine, guard passes, all these different situations that are very unpleasant when you're under a higher belt in jujitsu. And yet I didn't freak out. I didn't panic. I didn't react strongly because I've been training really hard the last six months with my coach. And he's put me in every one of these situations so many times that it's actually boring to me when I get caught in them. And boring in the sense of, oh, here we are again. Okay, well, here's another opportunity for me to learn and to work my way out of this problem according to the way I've been taught. And I did, for the most part. I worked my way out of these problems. Now, I still got submitted. They just went to a different submission. I still got caught in the guillotine, but it took three attempts to get there for the brown belt, which shows me I'm improving. But more importantly for me, afterwards, after the round ended and the bell rang, I would ask the brown belt, okay, how did you get there? How did you do that? Because coach catches me in that. And I'm working my way through the escape. I'm working my way through the sweep. I'm working my way out of this particular problem. And they would walk me through it. This is how I did this. So not only do I get practice and exposure in that chaotic violence, but I also learn and get an education as a consequence. Whereas, like I was saying to the uh, senior instructor for our intro to BJJ class last night, that experience reminded me, and I need that reminder from time to time, it's okay to roll with people that are at your own level or lower. But what you forget then when you get comfortable with that is you're not learning as fast. You're not hitting those peaks in your education as a jujitsu practitioner in this case, because it's the higher belts that are going to give you an education. They're the ones you're going to learn the most from because they're going to challenge you with things that you haven't seen before, things you haven't experienced, positions that you're not familiar with. And they can walk you through it because they've been where you are at. Whereas when you roll with people where you're at or lower belts, less experience, they're not where you're at. And if they are where you're at, they don't have the knowledge of a person that's been doing it four to 10 years longer than you. So it's very, very important to surround yourself 
with people that are more experienced than you, that know more than you, that have that experience and that knowledge and that wisdom then that they can give to you because that's going to elevate you so that you can become them to the next generation of people coming up behind you. And isn't that really the reason for education? In the end is, yes, it's for self-improvement and growth, but also so that when the time comes, you can be the elder, you can be the experienced one, you can then imbue your knowledge to other people. And in that way, you can train them up and say, hey man, I was where you were at it when at, at this place. I panicked like you did. I lost control. I, I spazzed out just like you. And here's what I learned. And so I'm going to give this to you so that you can learn too. And hopefully this accelerates your learning so that you learn this stuff faster than I did. So you can get to where I've gotten to more quickly. So uncertainty and fear are relieved by authority, by being a master of your craft, so to speak, or at the very least being educated and learned and experienced in your craft to the point where you recognize, okay, this is chaos. This is violence. This is not the time to panic. You've been here before. You've had these thoughts about these people before. You've had these emotions before. Look at the signs. Don't do this again. Take a step back. Detach. Look at yourself. What do you see? So with enough exposure, then you can adapt and make these things ordinary, inane, boring, as I say. They were fears, but now your familiarity with them, it leashes them, it, it domesticates them to a certain extent. So John Glenn, the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth, spent nearly a day in space, still keeping his heart rate under 100 beats per minute. That's a man not simply sitting at the controls, but in control of his emotions. A man who had properly cultivated what Tom Wolfe later called the right stuff. But you confront a client or a stranger on the street and your heart is liable to burst out of your chest or you are called on to address a crowd and your stomach crashes through the floor. As a pastor, I get up in front of people all the time and speak. As a conference speaker and teacher, I get up before crowds all the time, 500 people, 2,000 people. And they're just staring at you, waiting for you to say something. They want you to succeed, which helps. It's not hostile, usually. But yet, then you'll hear in response, well, I could never do what you do. What do you mean? Well, I could never stand up in front of all these people and just talk. How do you do it? Well, I can tell you, when I first started to do it, I mumbled into my chest all the time. Why? Because I was nervous. I was anxious. I was afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing because I'm just a museum of quirks. And people wouldn't understand a lot of what I was saying most of the time because I would mumble or I would trail off at the end of my sentences. That's yet another reason I started doing podcasts back in 2015-16 was I needed a place to practice speaking, to be better at expressing my ideas, enunciating my diction, all of it, everything that involves speaking. Now it's 2022. I've been doing this for almost as long as I've been doing jujitsu and Muay Thai. Actually, a little bit longer, I think. Point being, it's through practice and repetition and therefore failure that I've gotten to this point today. Now, I'm not saying that I've mastered the art of public speaking. Far from it. The more I learn about myself, the more I learn about how I speak, how I express myself, how I compose sentences and paragraphs and presentations the more unhappy I am, the more unsatisfied I am with what I'm doing because I recognize how much more improvement there is to be had. And what I mean by that is this. When you start anything and you're brand new at it, you're terrible at it. You suck because you don't know what you're doing. And so you're just fumbling your way through it as best you can. You might have a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy. You may throw yourself at it 100% but you're brand new and you don't know anything, which means then that you don't know what you don't know. So in the beginning of anything, you learn in chunks and you have these peaks a lot when you first start learning something because it's brand new and everything is a revelation. Everything is exciting. But then as you become comfortable with the fundamentals of that thing that you're learning and through practice and repetition and exposure, things start to come up to the surface and your teacher or your instructor or your coach points out things that you don't see. 
And as you improve, <clears throat> excuse me, you get deeper and deeper into the details of the technique, of the subject matter that you're studying, of this topic. And the further you go, the more granular the details. So when you're first learning something, you're learning in chunks because you don't know anything. So everything is just coming at you like a tidal wave and you're just grasping at waves. And you're excited because you're learning. And then as you learn and improve and grow and your knowledge base increases, you start digging down into the details and you realize, wow, there's so much I have to learn. There's so much I don't know. That's why new people are so enthusiastic and so gung-ho and want to tell everybody and proselytize. You got to try this, man. You got to take this cooking class. It's the best. It'll improve everything. They want everybody to have that kind of joy that they have. And I am so grateful for those people because as you learn and as you grow in whatever discipline that it is that you're training in, you lose that excitement because it becomes a job. Like I started off in jujitsu and Muay Thai. I was just happy to be on the mats. Now I have my own gym. Now I'm a coach seven days a week. Now everyone looks at me and expects something from me. And I kind of miss being new. I kind of miss the excitement of learning new things for the first time versus, like I said on Monday, rolling with brown belts, learning things that supplement and add to and make my game more robust and more complete. I'm in the granular detail stage of my development now. I'm learning what I don't know so that I can improve as an instructor, so that I can improve as a fighter, so that I can improve as a student and a teammate. And that just involves showing up day after day and grinding. And in the grind, it's easy to lose your excitement and your enthusiasm and your passion, which is why I think it's important that you surround yourself with new people constantly, which goes back to what I said earlier then about ego and training with new people and them testing you and you trying to prove something to them. Anybody who says that you can train in the martial arts, for example, and be egoless is lying to you because it takes a certain amount of ego to just do what we do on the mats. To spar requires ego. To get in the ring or get in the cage or step onto the mat at a tournament and fight somebody else, it takes a bit of ego. It just does. So you, while you're busy squashing your ego through this, this exposure to this, this discipline, you're also kind of feeding it at the same time. So what you're really doing, in my opinion anyways, and again, I've been doing this seven years, I don't know what I don't know, so maybe in two or three more years, I'll completely reverse my opinion, but at least where I'm at now in my development, it's going in and recognizing, I still got a lot of ego to crush, but it takes a lot of ego just to step on the mats and do this at my age. So what I'm really trying to do is maintain a balance over my ego. I know I can't get rid of it, but at the same time, I know I need to keep it within a, a good, strong, healthy set of boundaries so that I don't hurt other people and myself. And that's really what combat martial arts is for me. That's what Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu is for me, are for me. A way to control my emotions, a way to calm and quiet my mind and discipline my body all at the same time. But at the same time, like I was joking with my friend on Monday, whenever I see a bodybuilder now, I just think to myself, oh, I want to, I want to fight that guy. And he just looked at the guy I was looking at and just smiled and went, yeah, squishy. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, there's a different kind of strength when it comes to lifting weights versus being an MMA fighter or being a jujitsu practitioner or a Muay Thai fighter. It's just a different set of muscles. It's a different kind of hardness, right? And obviously I would never start a fight with anybody for any reason. I, I'm not down with that. But at the same time, you look at these guys strutting around with their cutoff shirts and, and so on so that you can see their muscles. And they should be proud of their muscles. They earn that stuff. They lift weights. They get in the gym. They get after it. They're disciplined. They train. But at the same time, the fighter in me is just like, oh, that guy's two inches taller. He's about 100 pounds heavier and he's just so bulky. Oh, I want to fight him so bad. Why? Well, one, it's ego, obviously. And two, it's just fun. It's just, hey, I want to challenge myself. I want to take that big guy on. These are, the, these are the silly things that higher belts talk about before classes on Mondays and Wednesdays. <laughs> but if you had asked me seven years ago that same question, I would have puffed out my chest and made a big show with my words and my body language about, yeah, I fight anybody anywhere. I'm not afraid of him. 
Well, that's the dog barking at the passerby because the dog's afraid. That's all you're doing. You're just showing that you're afraid. Versus when you can joke about it, what are you laughing at? You're laughing at yourself and the absurdity of those thoughts, but also you're laughing at your ego. You're laughing at the monster in your own heart and saying, hey man, calm down. He's just a dude doing his thing and he's getting after it and he's obviously healthy and he's strong. So why are you going to, why you got to go after him in a negative way then? Why you got to tear him down in your own mind to make yourself feel better? You don't. So mock yourself, have fun with it. Talk about it out loud. Make a joke of yourself, laugh at your own expense. That's another thing that's been really hard for me over the years is to laugh at myself because I take myself way too seriously most of the time because everything that I do is so very important and everything I say is so very profound. And so therefore I must also seek opportunities to beat that out of myself so that I can laugh at myself because even to this day, if you make a joke at my expense on the inside, it, it still stings a little bit. But if I make the joke at my expense, it's, it's okay, right? And so I have to expose myself more and more to, hey, you know what? When someone makes a joke at your expense, they're not disrespecting you. They're actually showing you that you're a part of the gang. You're a part of the group. You're a teammate. You're not the old guy. You're one of us. And you have to be aware of if they don't make jokes at your expense, if they don't bust your chops, if they don't give you a nickname, right? That means then that they don't like you. They don't think you're, you're part of the, the group. That's when you have to worry. So at the same time, you're thinking to yourself, oh man, just leave me alone. Don't, don't mock me. Don't make fun of me. Well, if they don't, how would you react? If you saw them hanging out over on the other side of the mats or on the other side of the room or in the break room and they're joking and talking with each other, making fun of each other, calling each other names, and you're not a part of that. Well, that means you're not a part of that circle. And maybe you don't want to be. That's cool. But if you do want to be a part of that, well, here's the rules of engagement. You get a nickname too. You get to be mocked and ridiculed and get your chops busted too. It's a part of the initiation. It's how we do. And so sometimes I think we wish for things that we actually at heart don't really want. It's just that we don't know how to process what's happening to us because again, we're allowing our emotions to control our thoughts, which means we're not really thinking clearly or soberly. And it leads us into some, I don't know, just low points in in our life. Well, I want to be a part of that, but I don't want to accept the consequences for being a part of that. I want to be a fighter, but I don't want to get punched in the mouth. I want to be a painter, but I don't want to practice painting. I don't want to hang out with other artists. I want to be a writer, but I don't want an editor. I want to be a gardener, but I don't want anybody to tell me how to plant. Well, then how successful are you going to be? It's time to realize that this luxury is just that. It's a luxury. When you get anxious and emotional, it's a luxury. It's an indulgence of our lesser self, which is our ego. In space, the difference between life and death lies in emotional regulation. Yeah, let's see. Hitting the wrong button, reading the instrument panels incorrectly, engaging a sequence too early, None of these could have been afforded on a successful Apollo mission. The consequences were too great. Thus, the question for astronauts was not, how skilled a pilot are you? But can you keep an even strain? Can you fight the urge to panic and instead focus only on what you can change on the task at hand? And life is really no different. Obstacles make us emotional. But the only way we will survive or overcome them is by keeping those emotions in check. If we can keep steady, no matter what happens, no matter how much external events may fluctuate. The Greeks had a word for this, apatheia. It's the kind of calm equanimity, there we go, equanimity, that comes with the absence of irrational or extreme emotions. Not the loss of feeling altogether, just the loss of the harmful, unhelpful kind. Like I said, when your ego says, you should beat the living shit out of that guy. What? Why? Because he tested you. He disrespected you. Get over there and slap him in the face and let him know who's in control of the situation. Who's the boss? Who's the alpha male here? That's an extreme emotion. That's irrational. And it could lead to some very negative consequences for you. Not least of which is the police knocking on your door. 
Why did you need to prove anything to that person? Why does it matter that they disrespected you? Why does it matter that they made a joke at your expense? Why does it matter that your neighbor does that thing on weekends that drives you nuts when you don't have to look at it? Why do you allow yourself to go to a place where you're acting and speaking irrationally? Why do you allow yourself to ride the roller coaster of extreme emotions, highs and lows? It's not that you are going to then lose your emotions by controlling them. It's just that you lose the harmful, unhelpful kind of emotions, the ones that affect your relationships negatively, that hurt you and hurt the people around you, hurt your business, hurt your brand. So don't let the negativity get in. Don't let these emotions even get started. Just say, no, thank you. I can't afford to panic. This is the skill that must be cultivated. Freedom from disturbance and perturbation. So you can focus your energy exclusively on solving problems rather than reacting to them. A boss's urgent email, an asshole at a bar, a call from the bank, your financing has been pulled, a knock at the door, there's been an accident. As Gavin DeBecker writes in The Gift of Fear, when you worry, ask yourself, what am I choosing to not see right now? What important things are you missing because you choose worry over introspection, alertness, or wisdom. And remember, wisdom is an experience with the emotions of that experience detached from the experience. So once you detach your emotions from an experience, you can learn from that experience, and that's wisdom. So what am I choosing to not see right now? The mass media, for example, which is a propaganda machine for the federal government, for state and local government, whatever they tell you, is agreed upon before the fact. There's a script that's been written, it's been produced, and now you are receiving the finished product. And nine times out of 10, whatever the mass media reports on is something to distract you from what the government or some corporation doesn't want you to see. So ask, what do they not want me to look at? Why are they distracting us? Why are they dividing us? Why are they attempting to panic us? What do they not want us to see? Do they not want us to see that the Japanese and British governments admitted that COVID vaccines hurt people and that the people that are dying are vaccinated and that the unvaccinated are recovering faster from COVID than those who are vaccinated? Could it be that they're trying to distract us from the fact that Moderna and Pfizer lied about all of their so-called tests of the vaccine and that the tests were so inconclusive and so broad as to render no specific data or criteria one way or the other for the efficacy of the vaccine? Could it be that children and adults are dropping dead from the vaccine? Could it be that we finally figured out that monkeypox was invented to cover for side effects of the vaccine and it's coming out now because whistleblowers from the CDC and the FDA and NIH have come forward and spoken to doctors at Johns Hopkins? Could it be they're distracting us from all of that? with more Russia hysteria, with redefining what a recession is, with distracting us with gun violence and mass shootings, with abortion. What are they distracting us from seeing? And what do they not want us to look at? When you watch the news, always ask yourself that question. What do they not want us to look at? So when you worry about COVID, when you worry about monkeypox, when you worry about the recession, when you worry about the elections, when you worry about whatever it might be, ask yourself, what am I choosing to see right now? And what am I choosing not to see right now? What important things am I missing because I've chosen to worry rather than take a step back, focus, and remember my learning, remember my lessons? Or another way of putting it, does getting upset provide you with more options? Sometimes it does, but in this instance, no, I suppose not. Well then, if an emotion can't change the condition or the situation that you are dealing with, it is likely an unhelpful emotion, or quite possibly a destructive one. But it's what I feel. 
Right. No one said anything about not feeling it. No one said you can't ever cry. Forget this whole manliness thing. If you need to take a moment, go ahead. Real strength lies in the control. Or as Nassim Tlaib put it, the domestication of one's emotions, not in pretending that they don't exist. I was just talking with somebody yesterday about this. Despite the fact that I focus so much time and energy on controlling my emotions, I'll be sitting at home after classes at night, eating dinner, and a commercial will pop up on YouTube. And I'll just start crying at the commercial because something about it just affects me that way. I don't know why. I'll just start crying in the last like 30 seconds and then, boop, done, onto the video. Why does that happen? No idea. Obviously, I was carrying around something inside of me that just needed to squirt out. I don't run away from it. I just let it happen and move on. There's nothing wrong with emotions. It's just when are you allowing them out and what emotions are you allowing out and how are they determining your reaction to outside stimuli? Do they control you or do you accept that, okay, right now I'm angry. 30 seconds from now, I may not be angry. So I'm just going to ride this out. Okay, I'm angry right now. Leash it, get it back under control. Okay, why was I angry? Why did that happen to me? Why did I start crying all of a sudden? What was it? It wasn't the commercial that made me cry. That was just a catalyst. What lit the fuse? Let's walk it back now. Let's analyze this. Let's figure this out. So the next time it happens, you can say, oh, okay, it was because of that. Then I can use that emotion constructively. I can reroute it into a productive avenue rather than allowing it to control and destroy me and distract me from what I need to do in the moment. So go ahead and feel it. Just don't lie to yourself by conflating emoting about a problem and dealing with it because they are as different as sleeping and walking. You can always remind yourself, I am in control, not my emotions. I see what's really going on here. I'm not going to get excited or upset. We defeat emotions with logic. Or at least that's the idea. Logic is questions and statements. With enough of them, we get to the root causes, which are always easier to deal with. Exactly. I've been talking about this nonstop, just talked about it before I hit record. It's easy to look at your life like a tree, like an apple tree, let's say. And you go up to the apple tree and there's apples hanging from the branches. And you pick an apple and you eat it. It's delicious. It's succulent. It's crisp. It's beautiful. And you look at the tree and you say to yourself, I'm so grateful that I have this tree here and it's healthy and it's producing this fruit. But you don't know that for a fact. You're going on the apple. And by the apple, you're judging that the whole tree is healthy. But what happens if the next season, no apples grow on the tree? What do you do? Do you start to ask questions about the tree or do you start asking questions about what's going on around the tree? Is it the weather? Have we gotten enough rain? Have we gotten enough sun? Are there aphids? Are there silkworms? In, like what's, are there worms? Did the worms get in the apple? Like are there termites under the bark? What, what happened that the, the fruit didn't grow? But how soon before you dig down to the roots to inspect the roots to find out if the tree is rotten? Because if the roots are rotten, there won't be any fruit. But it won't happen all at once. As the tree sickens, the apples will show up less and less on the branches until finally they're gone altogether. Then you look at the tree and say, well, why isn't this tree producing apples anymore? Is it the tree? Is it the external circumstances? What is it? But how often do we think to ourselves, you know what? Every year I think I'm going to dig up a root to inspect it to make sure this tree is still healthy. And we don't do that, of course, because it takes extra work, extra energy, extra time. So we go on faith. We trust that the tree is healthy. And we judge that by how many apples the tree produces versus let's ignore the apples, let's ignore the yield of the harvest, and let's dig up a root every so often and inspect it and make sure the tree is still healthy. Because if we catch it early, just like cancer, if we catch it early, we can address it. We can cut out that part of the root that's rotten. We can... We can administer medicine to the tree. We can do stuff to heal the tree. But if we wait until the apples stop growing on the branches, then it's almost, well, actually it is. You're too far gone at that point. You might as well just rip the tree out at the roots and transplant a new tree in its place. But how often do we do the same thing with our life? 
We judge our life based on external things, fruit, but we never look at the root of the relationship. We never look at the root of why we started doing this in the first place. If you're in a relationship and you love the person you're with, when was the last time you sat down and asked each other the question, why are we together? Or just, why do, we, why do you love me? It's not a pedantic question. It's not meant to evoke compliments for compliment's sake. It's to, to get the root exposed again and ask, in our relationship, are we good? Are we on the same page? Are we defining things the same way? Love, success, contentment, satisfaction? Do we have the same motives as when we started this relationship? Have we grown apart? Have we stopped communicating? Are we not expressing ourselves as well as we need to, to maintain this relationship, to build love more and more each day? Are we showing each other grace and charity? Are we showing each other forgiveness and kindness? Am I walking with you or am I lagging behind? Are you rushing ahead of me or am I being stubborn and anchoring us in place? Why not every three to six months just sit down with the person you love, whoever that is, and simply ask the question, why are we doing this? Why are we together right now? If it's for good reasons, you're going to make the relationship better because you're talking about it and you're expressing your heart to the other person. Again, you're funneling those motions into something positive and constructive. But if you ask the question and some negatives come out, some criticisms come out, then you can address those before they turn cancerous and destroy the relationship. Do you want to wait till you're audited to find out that your business is in trouble? Or do you want to recognize that based on the amount of rent that you have to pay on your lease every month for this space and the amount of people paying for classes at your gym, you can't afford to make your nut this year. And if you keep pretending like you, can't, you don't need to change or you don't need to reassess how you run your business, by the time you do realize you're in trouble, it's too late. Well, I've got students and I've got mats and I've got this. And I, well, okay, you've got all that, but are you making enough to pay the bills and have enough left over to justify the amount that you're putting into your business? Are you hustling enough? Are you grinding enough? Are you talking with people that can help you with advertising and branding and getting the word out about your business in the community online? Are you going to see law enforcement? Are you going to the fire station? Are you going and talking with other people and saying, hey man, can I come in and teach self-defense classes? Something that I've realized in the last year is that where I live at and where I operate my gym, it's almost impossible to find men who want to take jujitsu to Muay Thai for me. It's not that they're not interested in learning. I've even asked wrestlers to come in and they won't. There's just something about men in this area, they don't want to train. And yet women and children are curious and they are always coming in to try a free class, to try it out. And they're the ones who sign up. So I've got one guy, literally one guy in my gym who's permanent and another one who just does drop-ins. All of my students for the past two years are women and children. So I realize I need to change the way that I advertise. I need to change the way that I market and brand my gym in this community. Men aren't interested in combat martial arts, but women and children are. So maybe instead of advertising it as an MMA gym, which is how I learned to advertise it from my coaches and from other gym owners, I need to advertise it as women's self-defense and anti-bullying classes. I'm going to teach the same Muay Thai. I'm going to teach the same jujitsu. I'll run everything the same way that I do, but paying attention to these people are here to learn self-defense, not sport jujitsu, but physical combat oriented grappling. So I got to tweak my classes just a little bit. We'll hold off on teaching heel hooks until the second, third year, right? Stuff like that. But also realize these kids don't just need someone to teach them Muay Thai. They need a mentor. They need a strong masculine figure in their life that not just teaches them how to defend themselves, but also teaches them about what we're reading and discussing today on the podcast. How do you control your emotions? How do you think objectively about these things? Well, if you're a young boy or girl and you don't have someone in your life that can teach you these things, that's your job as a coach too, to mentor, to show up for them and say, hey, not all men are like your dad. Not all men are like your mom's boyfriend. Not all women are like your mom. 
Not all men or women are like your family. It's not all negative. It's not all bad. You're not cursed. You're not a wimp. You're not a pussy. You're none of these things that people call you. You're just a kid. And other people are taking advantage of you. And I can teach you how to not be taken advantage of. But it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of sweat, maybe even a little blood, a lot of bumps and bruises. But I'll be there for you. And I'll show up for you every class, every day. And when you have questions, I'll answer them to the best of my ability. And if I can't answer it, I will go learn the answer. And then I will come back to you and we'll both be improved. But if we as teachers, broadly speaking, whatever that means for you, if we don't take ownership of that, if we don't recognize that we have something to give to other people that can improve them and help them get control of those things that are destructive, that will lead them off the right path, the good path, if we don't raise them up in the way that they should go, we shouldn't be surprised then that when they get to college and become adults, they don't have any moral foundation. They have no faith or trust in anybody or anything. They're functionally nihilistic. No meaning, no values, no higher purpose. And is that what we want? Well, we see what happens currently in our society with nihilists. It's a pretty dark place. It's a pretty depressing society. So in your little corner of the world, whatever it is that you do, be open to the possibility that you're a mentor to somebody. You're a teacher to somebody. You have wisdom to bestow on someone. I don't care how old you are. If you've been through it and you've put in the miles, you're a teacher. And then it's just a matter of figuring out how do you teach? How do you imbue others with what you've learned, your experiences, your wisdom? Well, you start by simply explaining, listen, man, nobody that was emotional ever want to fight. At least not in a kind of quick and easy sort of way. I'm sure there's lots of people that have won fights when they've completely lost their shit emotionally. But is that sustainable for a career? Even if you're a street fighter with 200 victories, can you really fight emotionally all the time and consistently win fights? What happens when you encounter a more well-trained person who's un in control of his or her emotions? who dances around you and just picks away at you until you can't go anymore because you're exhausted because your emotions have just blown out all your energy. Yeah, maybe you win a fight or 10, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. So we, we defeat emotions with logic, or at least that's the idea. Logic, questions, statements. And that way we get to the root cause of the problem and makes it easier to deal with it. So we lost money. Okay, but aren't losses a pretty common part of business? Yes. Are these losses catastrophic? Not necessarily. So this is not totally unexpected. Is it? How could that be so bad? Why are you all worked up over something that is at least occasionally supposed to happen? Well, um, I, er, and not only that, but you've dealt with worse situations than this. Wouldn't you be better off applying some of that resourcefulness rather than anger? Try having that conversation with yourself and see how those extreme emotions hold up. They won't last long, trust that. You ever argued with yourself? You ever do that? I do it every once in a while, especially when I'm outside on the deck. I'll just argue with myself. I argue with God a lot, but I argue with myself every once in a while too. Sometimes I argue with myself because I want to be God. <laughs> I want to do his job for him. But I argue with myself. And at a certain point, I just have to accept that I'm not being logical. I'm trying to sound logical to myself, but it's me arguing with myself. It's kind of hard to lie to yourself. And you realize, yeah, I'm not really making any sense. I'm just, I'm spinning in circles here. So try having that conversation with yourself and see how those extreme motions hold up. They don't. You, you play them out pretty fast. And after all, you're probably not going to die from any of this. It might help to say it over and over again whenever you feel the anxiety begin to come on. I am not going to die from this. I'm not going to die from this. I'm not going to die from this. Or you could try Marcus Aurelius's question. Does what happened keep you from acting with justice, generosity, self-control, 
sanity, prudence, honesty, humility, straightforwardness. Nope. Then get back to work. Subconsciously, we should be constantly asking ourselves this question, do I need to freak out about this? And the answer, like it is for astronauts, for soldiers, for doctors, and for so many other professionals, must be no. No. Because I practice for this situation and I can control myself. Or no. No, because I caught myself and I am able to realize that that does not add anything constructive. Am I being generous with my time and my energy? Am I exercising justice? Am I doing what is right, even if everyone around me is doing what's wrong? Am I in control of my thoughts and my actions? Am I behaving in a sane and sober way? That meaning objectively and unemotionally. Am I exercising prudence and honesty? Humility. Am I checking my ego? And am I being straightforward? Am I beating around the bush? Am I talking around the issue? Or am I simply addressing it directly in the simplest language possible, in short sentences? I mean what I say, and I say what I mean, and I don't add anything to it that doesn't need to be said. No obfuscation, absolute transparency, as best as you can manage that. Am I doing that? And if not, why? Why am I not doing that? What is getting in the way? What is obstructing? What obstacle is in my way that is preventing me from exercising and being that person who is just and right and sober and sane and prudent and humble and under control? What or who is preventing this from happening? And what can I do about it? And what can't I do about it? So at root, and obviously it's an hour at this point, so I'll come to the next chapter that I wanted to read today, next week, God willing, practicing objectivity, because I've pretty much talked about that in relation to this this week. But that's really the thing we're driving at, exposure therapy, exposing yourself to difficulties and uncomfortable scenarios and experiences, so that through repetition and constant exposure, you learn how to be calm in the midst of the hurricane. When the devil comes knocking at your door, you don't freak out. You simply open the door and say, we're sorry, we're not accepting that today. We don't need anything from you today. We can look at evil and call it for what it is and not stay silent because we're afraid of being canceled on the internet or because family and friends are going to poo-poo our opinion. We stand up for those who are weak, for those who are being bullied, for those who are being oppressed. We stand up for what's right, even if everyone around us is doing wrong. And we fight the good fight. We fight for the things we love. And we fight to keep the people we love in our lives. Because we recognize that in this life, there is brutality at every turn. And so for the good Lord to bring us together with someone that we can look at, whether we're laying next to each other in bed or across the table, or we're sitting out in the backyard enjoying the day, and you look at that other person and you realize this is a gift. Not everybody, there are so many people that would kill to be in my situation right now. To be loved unconditionally by the person sitting next to me. To have someone stare at me with the kind of adoration that this person stares at me. To be given the kind of respect and honor that these students show me. The camaraderie that my brothers in arms show me. These are gifts. I earned them through hard work. I earned them by developing a good character. And I earned them by showing up and putting in the hard work shoulder to shoulder with them. And that's how you, that's how you make it. That's how you accomplish your goals. That's how you fulfill your mission. You show up, you put in the work, you dig deep, you grind it out when it's necessary, you develop a good character, you learn how to leash your emotions, and you recognize this thing in my way, it doesn't have to be the thing that stops me. This isn't going to shut me down just because I experienced a loss. Did I die? No? All right. Then get back up, get back in there and figure out how to do it better the next time so you don't get beat as bad. Or you win. 
So check out Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Check out The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And like I said, I'll come back next week and read some more out of The Obstacle is the Way. Until then, though, thank you as always, Space Monkeys. I truly appreciate you, and I am so grateful for you. I hope that you are healthy and well, and if not, I hope that you are on the path to becoming healthy and well. And if this helps you in that, then I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful for you, and I appreciate you. So we'll talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.